0: Hello, everyone. I'm Cory, guest editor of Arts Equator. Today, I'll be speaking with the four women writers and creators who are the key creative forces behind the season of the Studios 2018 at the Esplanade Theatres on the Bay. With the theme Between Living and Dying, the Studios features five productions this year, and it runs from the 29th of March to the 29th of April at the Esplanade Theatre Studio. So here at the Arts Equator office today, we have playwright Faith Ung, whose play A Good Death opens the season from March 29th to April 1st. Um, Kayleen Tan writes and directs In the Silence of Your Heart, an in-ear audio experience for the theatre, which runs from April 5th to 8th. Um, And then we have playwright Michelle Tan, whose play I Am Trying to Say Something True from April 12th to 15th. And finally, Edith Podesta, who wrote, directed and performs in her production of Lida and the Rage, which concludes the season from April 26th to 29th. The studios this year also features a revival of a very popular one-woman show by playwright and former artistic director of theatre Agamatra Zizi Aza, titled How Did a Cat Get So Fat? It runs from April 19th to 22nd and it stars award-winning actress Siti Khadija Zainal. Unfortunately, they could not join us today. Um, but welcome to our office, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so I wonder if each of you could maybe tell me a little bit more about the origins of this work that you're doing and how they came into being, and maybe a bit about you know, what audiences can expect to see in these productions. So Faith, since you know, I guess your, your work opens <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the season, so from what I understand, a good death follows a palliative care doctor played by Karen Tan. Um, as she begins to sort of ponder what a dignified good death is and I was curious if any of this kind of stemmed from your own encounters with you know palliative care mortality and issues such as this
1: mm, yeah uh, it's something that I had been thinking about um, and for very like I don't know stupid reasons one being that my dog passed away oh. and I remember one of the remarks that the vet made was there isn't really care or yeah, p- palliative care for, for animals and um, how it would have been really great if there, there was. And it just got me thinking about that. And then um, during the run of my previous play, Normal, I actually uh, bumped into a, a JC friend. Uh, I hadn't seen her for a really, really long time. And then uh, she told me that she was now training to be a care physician. Oh. So th- that was where I started thinking about um, all, all those questions about what would make a human want to... Dedicate his or her life to to people who are at the final chapter, yeah. yeah. And um, what does that entail? Yeah. So I I guess that's what the play is really about.
0: Yeah. And I think it was quite interesting to me to see that a lot of the work in this season looks at loss in different ways. And I think Michelle, your piece also looks looks at different kinds of loss. So not just death, as as we just spoke about, or mortality, but also like departures and relationships ending. I was just curious how you started to begin to write I Am Trying To Say Something True, which I also believe is a, is a one-woman piece starring Alison yep. Tan. It definitely wasn't
2: the play that I intended to write when I started writing. I sent a very early draft in and then and then that draft doesn't exist anymore. So, so it's a whole different thing. And I think a lot of it is really encompassed in the title in and of itself. And I never, for myself, realized the effort that it takes in just trying to do do something as as ostensibly simple as saying something true. Um, So that's I think the main driving force behind this and I think the other big uh, reason for why this has happened is also that phenomenon of like a, a grief deferred, so being able to speak about something perhaps only years later because say at the time in which the thing happened, um, the time at which this loss had occurred, whatever it is, you just didn't have the words for it. And you know, it, it just, it, it there needs this passage of time in which the words appear or the words come to you and I think that was what happened. So that's how this play has come to existence.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah. I think there's something interesting also about the mixture of how each of your work also draws from real life or the intimate experience of, of what you've experienced in, in your own lives. Kayleen, I was, I was curious about in the silence of your heart, as I understand it, we listen, the audience will listen to the, the words of a man who is paralyzed. Um, so he's lost his his movement, but I feel like there's a sense of a reclamation that's lost in the fact that he gets the chance to speak. And, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about this um, piece and, and the kind of shape it will take, the, the experience it will take for, for the audience member.
3: The play is uh, an in-ear audio experience, so it's it's from the perspective of a man who has a stroke, Mm -hmm. and he's not only physically disabled, he also cannot speak. So it's inspired by my grandfather, who had a stroke for many years, and um, for most uh, for thirteen years. So you know, all that time, I only knew him as the person in bed. So I was always very fascinated by what went on in his head because, you know, he was he was a kind of larger-than-life character. He was a journalist. He was a politician, um, you know, and he, he loved to drink, smoke, gamble. You know, that was his life. And, and all I knew of him was this person in bed. So this, this was uh, an attempt to try and figure out, you know, or piece together something that could be an internal life of someone who cannot speak or move. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the in-ear audio, it's like a stream of consciousness that people will listen to. So he doesn't really get to speak to people, but
0: people get to hear him. It's so interesting that a lot of each of your work draws from really personal, specific figures so far. So with you, your grandfather, or with Faith, the loss of, of a loved pet, and then talking to your friend about palliative care. And I think Michelle for your own experiences in your life. For Edith, I'm curious because when I first read the title of your play, which is Leda and the Rage, I immediately thought of the Greek myth of of Leda and the Swan, in which the Greek god Zeus seduces Leda, in the form of a swan, and there's some very you know graphic images that have been produced in in, in art about this encounter. So I was wondering, you know, how this work came to be. I think for
4: me this is not a personal story, so unlike the rest, it's not my story. It's the story of a, an academic who um, whose research looks at trauma in art, in literature and film, and her journey of recovery. So the play starts with her lecturing um, about the work of Artemisia Gentileschi and who was who is a, a Baroque painter, one of the most successful or the first woman actually to make her living through the art that she painted. Um, it just so happened that alongside of her wonderful life, you know, friends with Galileo and, and getting commissions from uh, the King of France and, and uh, the UK, that she was uh, raped quite early on by one of her father's friends. And we have documents from the Roman archives. Uh, it was a 10-month rape trial uh, that she won. Uh, or her father won, because uh, back in those days rape was not against the woman, it was against the father, especially if she, you know, if she lost her virginity. The man owed uh, 50 silver coins, basically. And so it was not about her being raped, it was more about um, her bride price being lowered because she was raped. So the artist uh, speaks, as, as I have just now, looking at the history of, of rape through, um, through art. And then we find out that uh, she's seeking help from a therapist because um, she's having flashbacks for the first time in seven years since she um, was involved in a stranger rape. And so there is another character in, in my work, uh, played by Jeremiah Choi, a, uh, a man who works with perpetrators uh, of rape and also uh, educates. Uh, judges, lawyers and sometimes does workshops for the police force to look at rape myths and um, the psychology of trauma and she knows him and and goes to see him so the the play charts her personal journey as well as a journey uh, that's presented very much against the backdrop of of art and literature so we're drawing on, on kind of like the rape culture in Ovid's Metamorphosis which is I think there's like 250 rapes in those books. Um, which we don't really think about. So actually the play comes from you know, me looking at rape culture you know, in my own kind of research, and then finding PhDs about uh, the rape culture in Ovid and uh, uh, rape culture in the gallery and rape culture in our films and, and TV and wanting to write about that.
0: I think it strikes me, even though this isn't, as you say, a specific sort of personal story, I think there's also a great sense of intimacy just hearing all of you share about your work whether it's a single woman piece, you know, or with a solo performer or, you know, where we have an in-year order and we, and if I understood this correctly, we also see performers performing about yeah, it's from work. his perspective, so it's what he sees. Yeah. So he
3: sees uh, his caregiver and his uh, grandchild.
0: I mean, I feel like there's a very strong sense of intimacy about all of these works. So sort of the audience, you know, has, is listening to this and can kind of see from his perspective what is happening. And it's quite intimate for someone who, who can't really care for himself, or when you're close to death kind of assessing basically the huge existential effects of life and how to decide you know, on, on those large decisions. So there's a, a lot of intimacy in the work I think that you've talked about. How do you communicate this sense of intimacy that you want to present to you know, the audience members? How do you draw from perhaps the solo performer, the way he or she confides, you know, what are the different ways in which you want to present this intimacy to to the participant
4: or to the viewer? In Leader and the Rage, actually, we have kind of three planes. One is a very public lecture plane and one is a, a therapy room kind of plane and then there is an interior plane where she, very much like what everyone has spoken about today, um, tries, uh, is very articulate in the interior in her inner monologue, but it's forming or trying to articulate the images in day-to-day conversation which she's having trouble with. Leader in the Rage also has uh, two interpreters, so we have a signed performance. And you actually see this kind of intimacy between the two uh, interpreters, because it's shadow interpretation. So they, I have an interpreter, I mean, Leader has an interpreter and, and Jeremiah's character has an interpreter as well. But their communication is much more intimate than my communication with Jeremiah's character. So you get to see that intimacy between their communication, even their, their literal body language is, is in closer proximity than I am to Jeremiah.
0: I was also wondering about, you know, with work that draws from a very personal place in your life, you know, how you distinguish between confessing or confiding what you want to share about something that can be quite autobiographical, and also preserving that maybe private part of yourself. Or is it something that you'd also like to share kind of be vulnerable with, with an audience I was wondering especially with the death of, of some of, you know an animal very close <laughs> to you for example how do you negotiate that in putting it up to a public to to watch
1: mm. but this is completely not uh, autobiographical at all okay. yeah I think it just stemmed from there yeah. but very quickly um, became about stories of other people yeah so I, I did like almost close to a year where I shadowed a lot of uh, healthcare doctors in different settings, uh, hospitals and hospitals and, and homes uh, where I went into homes of people and really saw um, just how difficult it was for them but also um, they kept repeating what a gift it was actually to, to know that you are dying because then suddenly there's a very sharp kind of mirror that, that lets you see life for what it really is. And, and every little thing suddenly takes on a new significance. Yeah, and, and when I went through that whole experience with all of them, I just felt my life is so <laughs> so small and uh, my problems are so tiny. It was more about them and wanting to just be very quiet and, and almost just sort of let the camera run, I guess, and just see what they're going through.
3: Uh, i like to say that for mine, my, my grandfather's situation was very much the starting point, um, but it, I've sort of filled in the blanks my own way to fictionalize it. There is that personal, uh, I feel very close to it, but at the same time I won't say that it is a biography. I mean also in terms of the kind of intimacy, the kind of experience, uh, in our setting, in the setting of uh, In the Silence of Your Heart, It's a very intimate setting in that it's not a conventional seating arrangement. The audience is in the space
2: of the house. So they're very much witnesses to what's happening. I think I I struggle a lot with that feeling also that, that you mentioned Faith about after you churn something out, you look at it and you're like, is so trivial and it feels like, you know, and you know, this, this fear or this terror that this story is so unimportant. Why would anyone care about it? You know, if it's so personal, if it's so small, it's like look at what's happening in the world. There are much bigger things we can't be talking about. So, you know, why bother with this one very personal life? Um, so, yeah, I, I have no answer for that. I'm just saying that that's something that I'm constantly trying to fight as well and to be like, to believe. It, you have to believe in
0: the world in order to to put it out there. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting that you, you talk about how something is is very personal. And I was just I just happened to be reading um, an article that Lynn Gardner, the the Guardian reviewer, wrote in twenty fifteen, where she talked about how you know, and we're all women here. She talked about how you know when men write about their experiences for the stage, and I'm quoting her here. It is often perceived as being universal. But when women write about their experience, it is too often dismissed as personal, marginal, or domestic. But then again, I don't know if it's a it's, if it's a connection that unduly lessens the idea of the personal, and that the personal and the marginal mm-hmm. and the domestic has also no overlap with the with the universal. So I I wonder how you you look at this this I don't know if it's a false dichotomy between male produced work or. or you know, male-identifying produce work or male-identifying produce work, how you respond to this kind of statement about the personal and, and, and the universal? I think the universal can only
2: be reached through the personal. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of trouble with this also, I think, when I first started writing years ago, when I was much smaller and less smart. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was being also about being very ambitious and saying, you know, okay, I want to deal with death. Without knowing anything about it, without feeling anything for it, I want to talk about war without having lived through it. And then, I guess, as you age, <laughs> you sort of realize then that there is something to be said about your lived experiences and how that would inform your writing. And that then makes what you say about the universal hold more weight mm. and expands the truth about what you can say about universal. Otherwise, it's all
0: just it's all just conceptual. It's all it does. It's not rooted in anything real. Because are yeah. talking about the very personal and specific in your work, in this piece in particular, did you struggle with, with putting stuff, as, as mentioned earlier, that was very personal and very close, in uh, the words mm. you want to convey on stage, in having another person kind of convey this? Yeah, I think defi- definitely I did. I think I'm still struggling with it mm. up to the stage of,
2: of rehearsal. But I think it's like what Kayleen uh, said also, that yes, it stems from a personal place, but at the end of it, it's also about shifting certain details. It's also about knowing how to fictionalize certain things or how to, you know, remix the details such that as the creator the work, you then have a little bit more distance from it so that it, you can make it work. And I think what helps for me also is, is working with a performer that I know personally. So she's also a very good friend of mine, Alison. So I think in that, that sort of helps the, the sharing of, you know, of the work and talking about it on a deeper level than just um, artistically.
0: Quite a few of the works in this season of the studios are um, for solo performers, or for, for very small groups of performers. For, for Faith in particular, I think you have Karen, she's a solo performer Yeah, in, in the work. Is this the first time you're doing a monodrama?
1: <laughs> I can't remember, maybe. Okay. Yes, yes. yes <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that was the brief that was given. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, like, yeah, you know. It was a season of monologue. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> but then some people have detracted from <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, but was that, a, was that a, 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 creati- a good creative exercise for yourself as well to kind of write for that one yeah, voice? Without- definitely. Yeah. 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 And actually,
1: like um, I think about. Two years ago, I was actually asked uh, by the necessary stage to write a monologue for Karen. And then I rejected it because I just um, had nothing to, to say. Um, <laughs> and then when the s approached me, then, like, the first uh, actor that I recommended <laughs> was Karen. Yeah, so I think that
0: was a bit like, <laughs> what but yeah. what was the experience like, you know, crafting a, a monologue? Because I think, it, it, you know, Karen has, of course is a veteran, of, mm. she's done Emily of Emerald Hill, yeah. she's done The chance you know, To Whom it Me Concern, awesome. where she does quite a virtuosic performance. Yeah. Uh, so what has it been like working with her and crafting this piece?
1: Oh, it's been such an exercise, yeah, for me as a writer. She questions everything, which is really good, and also she's very generous, yeah, so it just so happened that at the time of workshopping the play, uh, her dad was going through a, a very difficult time, eventually her dad passed on. A lot of what she went through, I didn't realise uh, because I, I was writing privately d- during my own time, and then during the read, then we kind of realised that um, there were a lot of similarities, and so that made it very difficult for her as a performer. A lot of it hit very close to the bone. We weren't sure if that was a good thing, if she was ready, uh, if I should change certain things, yeah, it's been so challenging. Yeah, yeah. but I think it's
0: you know it's so personal to work in, with someone in such mm. close proximity. a writer as well. Yeah, and, and I don't know, Michelle. Did you feel the same thing with Alison? I like kind of these negotiations with the solo performer um, in the room with her. Did you have some of these similar challenges that you had to figure out about about her voice and you know how she navigated that? Not yet. <laughs> I I don't. I feel like we haven't actually jumped
2: into those, big, I think a lot of the of her negotiations with the tech so far have been between her and Sasi as the director. So when I'm there, I'm kind of just sitting and listening and, and you know, occasionally it'll be like, mm, maybe this line doesn't quite work on the floor. So, so I feel like any edits that I have had to grapple with have been in that sense quite minor um, mm-hmm. and have not been quite as, as deep or
0: emotional as, as what Faith mm-hmm. has described with character. So and even for you, as someone who's you know both performing and, and directing this work, and you've also written it, you know how do you how do you navigate all those three different roles where you take on quite different positions in each one, you know to to, to shape the work? How does that work for you in, in *Leader in the Range*? I
4: think for me, I chose to to return to a smaller way of working. I find this to be very, uh, I find to be doing everything. Trying to do everything yourself a smaller way of working its kind of like going, okay, what is the potential that I can create? I want to try things that I've never tried before or have been able to try just as a performer or just as a director or just as a writer. So when I'm writing, this time I am thinking about the final product, whereas in a show like Bitch, for instance, that I was doing the same kind of thing, I just wrote first and I hated myself, I hated I hated my writer self and then I, as a director, I hated my actor self and now I'm trying to love all myself and go, okay, so you wanna write that, fine, but how are we gonna put it, you know? So it's in conversation or in concert, all three things are, are working kind of together. So I find it easier in a way, I mean, it's it's a mad thing to say, but I find it easier because there is less to negotiate.
0: How large is your, your, your creative team, I guess, apart from
4: Oh, uh, I have uh, Adrian Tan, lighting designer, Brian Gothong Tan, uh, multimedia designer, Boone, sound designer, set designer, costume coordinator. So I, I have, and, and Mirabelle, who's in the rehearsal room, almost like a assistant director, you know, constantly giving feedback. Like, I, I still don't understand that. So I, I have to go away and go, oh, do I fix that as a writer? Do I fix it as a director or can I fix it as an actor? You know, so... Um, yeah, I'm not by myself. It's even though it's a it's a small, kind of private, intimate. It's still shared amongst a lot of people who I trust.
0: Yeah. Kirin has the process of developing this more in, kind of immersive piece. Like for you, I know. I know with you know, like your performance collective Spell Seven, you've done a lot of these kind of audio tours or audio walks in Singapore, and I think the, the audience member can download it and kind of go on that journey. But here, it's a very specific combines both that, that, that sense of the tour but also of the performance, so you're not just letting them kind of, I don't know if you're letting them kind of wander around the no, space? No, no, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, oh, they're trapped, they're okay.
3: trapped. Um, what was the question? Yeah, no, like
0: how you, you kind of navigate, the, you direct the audience experience through, through this space and this environment.
3: I think for, for me, I think once they, they put on the headphones, they're stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Lim is doing the the voice yeah. of, of the man and it's been really nice to work with him.
0: So you did the recording so that recording with Ketong is done. So you had uh, no, no, no text. Okay, okay, so 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 we did a preliminary recording
3: and then we uh you know and then that was like the first draft which we tried to work with and then we are, re, are redrafted it. So this is another version now that we are going to record soon. I think one of the challenges for this show is to find the, the world in which the women exist, mm-hmm. so uh, because they are silent, because it's a season of monologues. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so finding that world and um, the, the the challenge is is working with them physically. How do we make this uh, a complete world? You know, and and we're doing it uh, through physical actions mm-hmm. and movement.
0: And I mean. I know it was kind of designed as, as a monologue. I did, I, I, I swear to God. Um, I started off
4: writing a monologue, but everything I've written I go, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna write a monologue, yeah. And then I start writing, I go, oh God.
0: And then more and more she needs voices talk to, to, top, to Yeah, she needs to talk up one. I'm going but crazy. Mean sometimes it's just how the work develops, I think, as well, you know, and, and, and through no fault of, it, of anyone. It's just how, kind of, you know, that, that grows. But I'm also interested in, in the monologue form, because it's something that I think is quite, quite I don't know if Singapore's quite fond of this form. We have a lot of very prominent monologues, whether it's the confidence Too Big for the whole, you know, No Parking on Odd Days, um, or we have, uh, you know, especially the, the, the female monologues in particular with things like, uh, as I mentioned, Emily of Emerald Hill, or, you know, Dalak, which also, you know, talks with about a very difficult kind of divorce experience, um, or Rosna. Where someone goes abroad and, and comes back and reflects on Singapore in a different way. Um, or Jose Suleiman's occupation, looking at a very specific period of, of Singapore's history through the eyes of his grandmother. And there seems to be, you know, people are, theatre makers are drawn to this, to this forum. And I'm curious, you know, what you make of having that solo voice on the stage speaking to the audience. I'm just curious, as you know, theatre makers yourself, what, what draws you to this experience, if you will? I low budget. I'm <laughs> 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 no. But it's true. <laughs> right. it, it is, is true. One. Yeah, I think that that is one aspect to <laughs> it. It's, it's, it's very mind. mobile, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I
3: think it's a chance for storytelling. Mm-hmm. People enjoy uh, story. I think people enjoy uh, watching a character unfold on stage. Also, you know, seeing the, the virtuosity of the performer because mm-hmm. in the monologue form, often often uh, you know the performer doesn't just do one person. The person, you know, the performer does like <laughs> ten gazillion other characters. You know, like Claire Wong and Atomic Jaya. I think that that's why it's appealing and it's intimate. You you feel like oh, this person is telling me their story. Um, so I think there's something very personal, very raw about that mm-hmm. that is appealing.
0: I was actually quite interested if each of you had any seen had seen any of each other's work because I think a lot of you are meeting for the first time today as well. I mean, there's some connections between each of you, but I was wondering if any of you had seen the work of the others that had delighted or, or formed an impression you know, on you in some way, or even influenced or informed some of your work. I
4: remember seeing. Um and now I kind of uh, <laughs> remember the name of the play, the tree, the tree duet, tree duet. Uh, tree duet. Yeah. Okay. And I remember just going, oh wow! <laughs> I was so moved by that production, and I think um, it really opened my eyes. That it really did open my eyes. That you really could write about something that you were passionate and in love with that wasn't a human being, mm-hmm. and that kind of love love letter to to a tree and to our environment is something that that really sparked something in myself and uh, also that that it was not just a performance that, that idea that our presence there or how much the show cost or what was wasted environmentally in the show was paid for or offset by uh, by carbon yeah.
3: how, what's that <laughs> what is carbon, carbon footprint? footprint carbon f- <laughs> carbon footprint was
4: paid for and i thought ah oh. OK, so theatre is not just, you know, if you are talking about and the environment and a love letter to the environment, then it is beautiful to, and it was beautiful to be able to, to teach me how to, how to write my own love letter by simply offsetting my, my, my carbon <laughs> footprint, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so it opened me in a lot of different ways, but of course, you know, I've, I've, I've seen every single person's work.
2: The most recent thing I've seen of yours, faith is that play reading at TNS.
1: Oh, willful. Willful.
2: willful! Yeah, which I really enjoyed oh. because yeah, I felt fun. it was, it was I don't know, and I I don't know very much about all your work, but I just felt that it, it struck me because it was quite different from the rest of the things that I'd seen, and I, it was so short, and I really wanted it to to go on a little bit Thank more. You. Yeah, so that was an really <laughs> enjoyable experience. That
0: was quite a departure, you know, f- as someone who's yeah. watched some of your work. It was I was I was pleasantly surprised by that hey. encounter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So either you, you were in was it Versus that you were yep. in versus and then versus. we I think yeah. Michelle, both you and I saw duets by Very pop by Spell Seven yes. which unfortunately you went in yeah, <laughs> but yeah. you were there but <laughs> but, but that,
3: that duet show was what sparked off tree duet mm. yeah, um, because at the end you know that the, there was this tree that popped out of the basement of the substation you know backstage. Mm. And and Paul was just so unhappy with that tree. <laughs> you know. It can't end like that. I have to do something with the tree. So that, that that's
0: how tree duet came about. Right. Yeah. I kind of like they were all kind of here also responding to, to each other's work across the season where usually you have kind of separate weekends and, and a show exists and is gone. And it's quite interesting to see a lot of the relationships, not just in theme, I think, between each of your work but also the work that you've seen of each other in this in this ecosystem. Thank you very much for all being here today. Have a wonderful studio season between living and dying. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.